Jesus, we all pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Ryan. Uh, also, youth, middle school, high school, if you want to leave, there's a youth group down that hallway. Excited to have that happen. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here. Um, excited that you have joined us for this series. Um, if you if you are a regular around here, uh, you know that this is the nicest that I've ever dressed to preach a sermon. And I did that to honor my intellectuals, my head people, but now I know why you head people don't raise your hands during worship. Every time I go to raise my hand, my shirt was coming untucked, and I was like, this is why. I always judged you all. I was like, you guys aren't very spiritual, but really it's just you're trying to keep your shirt tucked. So I get it. I get it. Um, no, for, for those of you that have only been here a couple of weeks during this series, this is a unique series, um, Spiritual Stations. Dave, you can go ahead and throw up that overview slide. Um, where we're really just talking about how we connect with God. The, the scriptures say when, when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so throughout this series, our goal is to kind of look at all four of those attributes. And it's really the most excited that I have been about a sermon series in a long time. And that's really for two main reasons. Number one is we tend to surround ourselves with people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, have similar opinions that we do. And we tend to go to church with people that talk like us, think like us, act like us. And I, I think it creates, honestly, it creates overly biased feedback loops for ourselves. And we think that our way is like totally right. And how could anyone think differently than we think? Um, and so I think it's really good for us to kind of engage with some different elements. And, and, and the thing about the series is one or two of these weeks during the series, you guys are going to love it. And a couple of the other weeks, you're going to be like, why did we do that? Like some of you last week were like, why is there someone dancing with a flag on stage? And some of you this week were like, why are we reading the Apostles' Creed, right? Like there's, there, we're all over the spectrum here, and it's a good thing to lean into gospel diversity. Um, I, my, my goal is that this series will help produce a unity within our church, because I do believe we have a uniquely diverse congregation um, compared to a lot of other churches, and that's a good thing. And so I hope that we create a unity with one another, and also even a unity outside of ourselves with other churches that do things differently than we do, that think differently than we do, that worship differently than we do, but that preach the same gospel that we preach. So I hope that it brings about unity in our hearts and our lives. And secondly, all of these things are important to your individual faith. But what tends to happen is we tend to gravitate towards one or two. We water the seeds in one or two of the areas. Um, and we don't really get outside of our comfort zone very often. And so my second reason for being so excited about this series is that I, I hope that we step into some practices that we don't normally step into, that we spend some time engaging with God in different areas of our life that we're not used to. And hopefully that, that broadens your horizons, that, that deepens your faith, and that helps you to better obey the Scripture, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, so far we've covered um, the mystic and the heart down there at the bottom, and today we kind of move up towards the head. Um, and I love what Matt says. This, 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 the goal of this is that we get a zip code, right? 
Like, don't pigeonhole yourself into what your results are, but that you get close, a proximity to where you naturally connect with God, and then we learn how to connect with God in other ways. And the reality is we didn't, we didn't put these in any particular order. Matt and I had a conversation, like, what order should we put these in? Should we even consider what order we put them in? And the reason that we didn't do that is because I'm, I've been a pastor long enough to know what you guys are already doing. You guys are already like, yeah, Ryan, these are, these are good things, valuable things in this order, right? You got anybody already done that? Did anybody already throughout the series put which, val- which ones are more valuable than others, or am I just judging you hard right now? Maybe I'm just a judgmental person, but, but, but I tend to do this, right? I tend to say like, yeah, all of these things are valuable, heart, mind, soul, strength, all of them are valuable, but it's really important that we put this one first or this one second. And, and, and again, maybe it's my bias, but I think because we grew up in a Western culture, most of us, and we attend kind of a more Western church, I think we're, we're kind of naturally biased towards the head. And so, so maybe it's possible that we say, like, yeah, these are all really good as long as the head's up top, right? Anybody else feel that way? Or is that just me? But the text does not say... Love the Lord your God with all of your mind and with all of your heart, soul, and strength. If you have time, after you've nailed your systematic theological framework and your doctrinal statement's perfect, after you finish your deep study through Romans, then get to the heart stuff or the mystic stuff, right? doesn't say that. Or maybe I put it this way. Hopefully this connects with some of my head people. Orthodoxy is meaningless without orthopraxy. Like, good ideas are only good ideas if they lead us to obedience. So, let's be careful to understand the value of this entire sermon series, the entire quadrant, lest we become modern-day Pharisees or Sadducees. Sound good? All right, let me pray, and then we will get into... I promise I'm going to honor my head people. I'm not going to just poke you all day long. I, I, will, I will honor you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for yet another opportunity to gather together with followers of Jesus and those that got roped into coming by one of their friends and don't know why they're here, or those that are seeking something more to life, a deeper meaning than just going through the motions and paying the bills. God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray that you would show up. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be present in this room and through the proclamation of the scriptures, you would speak to each individual what they need to hear this morning for your glory and for all of our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Um, So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 17, I am going to be preaching out of the New American Standard Bible, which is not my modus operandi. Um, and I think I have a, a slide here about the translations. And so the, the New American Standard is really the, the, the strictest, most literal um, English translation that we have. And so it's really good for deep study. And then as you go along, it gets more kind of pragmatic, practical, easier to read, but also understand that the translators are kind of doing some interpretation along the way. Uh, no translation is perfect. Um, they're all valuable for different reasons and 
Um, so again, let's be careful not to just overvalue one or the other. But if you're if you're going to do some deep study, I'd encourage you to get a New American Standard or an English Standard version, Holman Christian Standard, somewhere in that realm. And if you're smarter than me, feel free to read the KJV. But I just tend to I I, I like to read it at funerals and at weddings because it sounds really pretty. But half the time I don't know what's going on. So I'm just really honest with you um, this morning. So, feel free to, to dive into translations. The beautiful thing about technology is you don't have to buy every translation. Like, get a hardback copy of your favorite and then use your app or the website to read whatever translation you want. Um, I'd love some crowd participation this morning, just at this time, not at all times. So, let's just get that clear. Um, do me a favor and, and think for a second about your time in school, elementary, middle, high, college, um, grad, whatever, however far you got in school, and as soon as you can picture the, your favorite teacher, the teacher that you had that you loved, do me a favor and raise your hand. As soon as you, that person comes to your mind. All right, I'll give you a few seconds. Most of us. All right, leave your hand up if you also just as quickly have your least favorite teacher in mind. Does anybody, you guys able to draw? Okay. okay. Some of you didn't couldn't think of your favorite, but you could definitely think of your least favorite. And, and here's the reality. Most of us, we've all had um, we've all had positive and negative experiences with people in positions of intellectual power over us. Because the reality is information is power, right? Information gives us access to something that, that, that can do things for us. And, and all of us, most of us, I would assume, the people that we thought about the teacher that we liked, yeah, they were personal, they were relational, but if I had to guess, I would assume that they helped you learn how to think. Like, when I think about my best professors in college, they, they didn't tell me what to think, they taught me how to think. And when I think about my least favorite professors in college, and I had many, actually most of my Bible college professors were more concerned with teaching me what to believe rather than how to believe. And I think it's really important as we, as we get to talking about the head, the importance of studying the scriptures intellectually, that we realize that there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. In our text this morning, we're actually going to see information, biblical information handled well and handled poorly. And my hope is that at the end of this message, we would all be convinced of the value of connecting with God through our minds. And we would step into practices that cultivate that connection. Sound like a good plan? Again, I always ask that. I really don't care what you say because the message is already written. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Luke says this, Now, when they had traveled, who's they? Paul and Silas. This is the second missionary journey for those of you that are familiar with the timeline of Acts. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, there we go. They came to Thessalonica, um, where there was a synagogue of Jews, and according to Paul's customs, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them, intellectual, from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Don't you guys wish Paul was here to preach to us this morning? This is good stuff. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But 
the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world, that's our faith, upset the world, have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. How dare he? And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is no other king but Jesus. They stirred up the crowd, and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. So it's important that we understand Luke's approach when writing his book. Luke is both, both a historian and a pastor. And so he wants to give us a historical reference for what was happening at this time, but he also wants to teach us some spiritual lessons. And so in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, he actually just breezes through 200 miles of Paul's second missionary journey. And so it's not that, that Paul wasn't engaging with those people intellectually or preaching the gospel to those places, but he's, just, he's given us a, a Cliff Notes version of what happened there. And then he's going to specifically zoom into two encounters that compare and contrast one another. He's going to zoom in on Paul's preaching to the Thessalonians and, and in our next chunk of Scripture to his preaching to the Bereans. And the reason that he's comparing and contrasting these two is because they both handle the Scriptures very differently. They both engage with the Scriptures intellectually in a very different way. So Paul stops in Thessalonica. It's a large urban area right off of one of the main Roman highways and he started his normal ministry philosophy, which was to show up to the synagogues on Sabbath and begin to reason with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles through the Scriptures. He was trying to get these people who were familiar with the Old Testament teachings to understand that Christ was the Messiah. See, see Christianity really is a Jewish religion. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and so Paul goes first to the Jews to try and reason with them and, and help them understand how the Old Testament scriptures were always pointing to this moment in human history where Jesus of Nazareth would come, the Son of God, live a perfect life, and die in our place for our sins. See, from God's promises to Eve in Genesis 3, to his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, to establishing the eternal throne of David in 2 Samuel 7, through the Messianic prophecies, prophecies of Isaiah and much more, Jesus has been, is, and will always be God's rescue plan for a broken and sinful world. This is Paul's message to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians and he does it for three weeks straight, reasoning with them, explaining to them from their scriptures why Jesus is the Messiah. A few of them believe some devout Gentiles and some prominent women receive Paul's message, but a majority of the Jews, they become jealous and they stir up a violent riot. Is this a positive way to interact with intellectual information? Probably not, but we'll get there in a minute. Let's finish the story so we have greater context to dive into both specific stories. In Acts chapter 17, verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas. Why? Because they're persecuted in Thessalonica. They send them away by night. It's an important piece of information, right? They're fleeing from this persecution. And they went 
into the, uh, and they away by night to Berea. It's about 50 miles away, um, 20 miles down the road, 30 miles off the road. Um, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Again, Paul's just doing his thing. He's going back to the synagogues to reason with the Berean Jews about the scriptures. Now look at this, verse 11. This is the key to our entire message this morning. Now these were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul and Silas flee persecution from the Thessalonians, um, and in Berea they encounter a group of Jews who by all intents and purposes had almost an identical culture, religion, and ideology to the Thessalonian Jews. These are very similar cultural people, right? It's like Winchester people and Leesburg people. Like, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty similar. I mean, you know, my, some of my country boys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. No. We're similar, right? We have a very similar ideology, culture, religious kind of upbringing and background. And Luke seems to be intentionally unpacking these two stories back to back to show a positive and a negative response to the scriptures. Thessalonians were jealous, closed-minded, and angry, and the Bereans were benevolent, open-minded, and receptive. I want to spend the rest of our time kind of comparing what those two approaches to the scriptures look like and how we might all kind of really value the second version of studying the scriptures in a way that helps us better connect with God and follow his teachings. So I think we see really two approaches to the deep study of scriptures in the text this morning. The first I would say is this, that the, the Thessalonians, they were viewing the scriptures, uh, they were using the scriptures as a way to confirm what they already believed. So they were coming to the text with an idea about what they thought the Old Testament said. And Paul, he's coming to them with, with new information, with new ideas, using the text to explain it to them. And they're like, hmm, that's not what we've heard that the Old Testament's all about. They get uncomfortable with Paul's explanation of the scriptures. I think they actually, they were starting with their preferred theology rather than the scriptures themselves. I was talking to Matt this week, and this is really kind of the, the ideology that, that a lot of my Bible college acted with, right? There was like, we started with our systematic theology. We opened up our systematic theology first. For me, I went to a Baptist school. It was the Wayne Grudem systematic theology. And so when I wanted to know, what do we believe about ecclesiology? What do we believe about the church? We didn't start with the scriptures. We started with Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and then we went to the scriptures. What do we believe about baptism? What do we believe about communion? What do we believe about women in ministry? Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I wasn't taught to search the scriptures for myself. I was taught to start with what I already knew to believe to be true, and then proof text it with the scriptures. Here's the problem with that. We come to it with a bias. We get comfortable with our preferred interpretation of the scriptures. And we end up believing what we've always believed. And what's the response? When you start with an idea rather than starting with the scriptures, 
Anytime somebody points out a, a, a flaw in your theology, rather than going back to the scriptures to study it for yourself, you get jealous and angry. This is the Thessalonian response. Somebody brought to them a different interpretation than the one that they were comfortable with, and rather than wrestling with the, the, the merit of the argument, they just get jealous and angry and they stir up a mob. Let me say this. The best way to combat bad ideas is better ideas. It's not anger. It's not jealousy. It's not fits of rage. The Christian response to bad ideas should never be power or fighting back with, 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 with might. It should be going back to the Scriptures, wrestling with the Scriptures, and, and, and doing, expounding the Scriptures in a way that honors Christ's sacrifice. And you know what's crazy? It's crazy. We don't do this nowadays, but what they did um, in, the, in the early church, notice how quickly it got political. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that today. Um, but in verse 7, um, they're stirring up this evil riot, and they, they're trying to throw Jason under the bus. Cause, sorry, Jason. Um, you, you brought him into your house, so it's your fault. And they say, they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. If you were to, 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 to just read this passage, you might think that the Jews were some kind of like political leaders with the Romans, because when they, when they go against Paul's teaching, it's not a theological argument, it's a political argument. These, these people are teaching something opposite of what the Roman world is teaching. Why? Why do we think that is? They're comfortable with their the partnership that they had set up with the Roman government. They had, honestly, they'd kind of gotten this position of power where they were allowed to do their own thing, their own way, and they'd kind of partnered alongside of the, the Romans. And so they had this really uncomfortable political relationship. And so rather than wrestling with the theological arguments of the Scripture, they just, they use political alliances to make themselves more powerful. We don't do that today, do we? This is an extremely uh, temptation, extremely prevalent temptation for us today. We love to use the text to allow us to align with our political party of choice. And the way of Jesus does not fit neatly into any secular political ideology. Rather, it is a political ideology unto itself. The Scriptures is about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And so let's be careful that when we come to the Scriptures intellectually, we don't do so just trying to confirm what we already believe, just trying to make us feel comfortable to the positions that we've already dug our heels into. And I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again, I'm an equal opportunity offender, so get ready. I'm coming for both groups in the room this morning. Conservative Christians, we are suffocating our churches from growing and reaching the lost because we've convinced ourselves that our very nuanced position on non-essential doctrines are crucial to the gospel. We've become, we've become unwilling to have benevolent conversations with godly brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than us and who can argue their perspective with solid, logical, and biblical reasoning. It's quiet. 
It's almost like we're in a red county or something. All right. Liberal Christians. We are leaving our churches. Notice how I say we for both of these statements because I find myself in both camps at times. We are leaving our churches by the busloads because we've used a pretty spotty hermeneutic to make the scriptures say some things that they haven't said historically. So that we can claim to have some kind of moral high ground. We're putting a wedge between the family of God with an unhealthy intellectual approach to the scriptures on both sides. Logic, reason, and thorough intellectual study of the scriptures is extremely beautiful and maturing, and it will drive us away from, from, from perspectives and ideas that we've held on both sides of the coin. We've got our heels dug into some things that we think are biblical, and pastorally, I would just ask you to reconsider. I'm not covering specifics here. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that for you, okay? But let's think about these things with logic and reason. Let's, let's do what the Bereans did. Let's search the Scriptures day by day to see if that's actually what they said, rather than coming to them with an idea that we already have and trying to prove that idea in unhealthy ways. So the Jews in Thessalonica, they approach the Scriptures to confirm what they already believe. And the Bereans, they search the Scriptures regularly to understand the true meaning. Paul in, or Luke intentionally pairs and contrasts these two stories back to back. Yes, they happen back to back, but they're also it's a really unique pastoral thing for him to do here. Verse 11, he says, These Jews in Berea, they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. I was wrestling with this word. I did some word studies. I was trying to define it as clearly as we could define it. And, and it hit me like Thursday afternoon. I love this word. I'm, I'm going to summarize it as classier. The Bereans, they had a classier approach to the Scriptures. They were open-minded and benevolent, ready to hear ideas that were different from their own. And this is what beneficial, a beneficial intellectual pursuit of God looks like. Regularly searching the Scriptures with a clear mind and a humble spirit, willing to be wrong about what you thought it said. Back to the systematic theology book. Those are, those are okay to have. It's not a bad thing to have a systematic theology book. But I think what the Bereans would have done if, if they had access to publications like we do, is they would have pulled down their systematic theology book and their Bible, and they would have started with their Bible. This is the proper response or the proper engagement of intellectual information. And this is where it gets really hard. Because it's impossible. It is impossible for you to search the Scriptures without any bias. We all have bias. We all have ideas that we're coming to the Scriptures with. We all have cultural understandings. We all have experiences. We all have bias. But our, our goal should be to acknowledge our bias from the beginning of our scriptural study, to put our bias beside our Bible on the table and do our best to make sure that it doesn't sway us. To, to make us fit the scriptures into our own ideology. We should seek to understand the author's original intent. What was the author communicating to the original recipients in their cultural context? Their context matters. And then we should prayerfully invite the Holy Spirit to help us understand how that specific message applies to us in our current cultural moments. 
And then once we do that, that interpretation should be worked out in the Christian community. You don't get to, by yourself, in your study, study the Scriptures with an open mind and a humble heart and come up with your interpretation and then not cross-reference it with any other believer. This is a communal thing that we're doing. It's a communal thing that we're doing. And so, whether you're a regular head person or you're just stepping into it this week, I'd encourage you, learn from these two stories. Prayerfully consider whether or not you're searching the Scriptures to confirm what you've already believed or to understand what they actually say. Are you more concerned with what the Scriptures say or with your reputation among your group of people that all kind of believe the same secondary ideology theology? I see this so much. I have a passion to, to, to meet with local pastors all around our area. And as I've reached out and tried to meet with some, we have this great crew of people, but there's like a circle here and a circle here and a circle here and a circle here. And they're all very similar. And they get together and pray with one another, but none of us all pray together. Why? Well, because if, they, if this group saw one of their own praying with this group, then they would think, oh man, is he compromising his theology? And then he would lose some prestige and some reputation, right? This is, this is what the Thessalonians were worried about. They wanted their power and their reputation. And they weren't willing to wrestle with Paul's reasoning or scriptural arguments because they didn't want to lose their power or their reputation. So, once you've examined your motivations to approaching the scriptures, there's a few techniques I would encourage you to enlist in seeking to connect with God intellectually through the Scriptures. The first is look broadly. Understand the Bible in its full context. Yes, the Bible is 66 individual books written, over, written by over 30 unique authors over a span of a thousand plus years. But it is also one book that tells a unified story of God's redemption plan from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So as you approach the Scriptures, to, to study them intentionally with your mind, with your thinking cap on, don't just teleport into a singular passage or a singular verse. But first, understand how that book connects to the greater story arc of the entire Bible. Does that make sense? I've seen entire theological frameworks built around one chapter, or even worse, one verse taken out of context. If you want, I'll let you borrow my Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and you can see a couple of those. Man, I'm, I'm sorry. That's probably, that's probably something i got to deal with. All right. All right, so let's be careful. Let's understand each book in its broader context. We see the importance of this. There's three main sermons that are um, preached in the book of Acts. Peter preaches one in Acts chapter 2. Stephen preaches one in Acts chapter 7. And Paul preaches one in Acts chapter 13. And they're broad strokes. The goal is to help the Jews understand how from Eve to Abraham to David, all of them connect to this one story that was all about bringing Jesus through the lineage of the Jews to, to, to bring salvation to the entire world. And so there's these really broad sermons that understand the entire story arc of the Bible. So let's, let's understand that. I would recommend two um, specific resources. They're both on the back of your handout. The Bible Project by Tim Mackey is a great place to start when seeking to understand how the Bible fits into its entire story arc. 
Bama podcast is also very deep. So don't start that if you're faint of heart. But if you want to get into it, give that a shot. And anytime I resource something, especially in an intellectual sermon, know that I'm not signing off on everything that each person says. Put your thinking cap on, right? Engage with it. And if you have questions about some of the interpretations or ideas that might concern you, let's have a conversation. So, once you've examined all your motivations, sought to understand the text in its broader context, then you should feel the freedom to dig deep into specific passages or verses that you're studying. Although these three sermons that I mentioned in Acts are broad, we see pretty clearly from Acts chapter 17, verse 3, that Paul wasn't afraid to get into the weeds. It says in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence and reasoning with them from the Scriptures that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Paul was not afraid to dig deeply into the Scriptures, to get specific. Take it from a guy who went to Bible college for a few years. There is tremendous value in spending significant amounts of time studying a particular book or a particular section or even a particular verse within a section or even a specific word within the verse, within the section, within the book. Are we, we tracking? I could give you example after example. I have a couple written down, but we don't have time. Um, of, of times in which I came to a passage that I did not understand, made no sense to me. And I had to wrestle with it for days, weeks, or months before the Holy Spirit gave me some, <laughs> some broad understanding of what it meant. But man, is it beautiful when you put in the blood, sweat, and tears of studying the scriptures and and you have that aha moment. Wow. God speaks so clearly through scriptures. So beautifully, so wonderfully does he open up our minds to understand the text. And man, when you understand the text more deeply, man, does it deepen your worship. And shouldn't it send you out to be obedient to the scriptures? One of my favorite examples of this it's the book of Romans. My head people in here, you guys like Romans? Wow, that was, that was weak. thought you were going to get more pumped than that, right? So, so Paul is writing to the church of Rome. He's never been there. And so he's trying to give them his, his, his theological treatise, right? Like as, as deep as he can get so that they understand theology. He's got 11 chapters of deep, rich theological truth. And at the end of all of it, his response is a doxology of worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counselor? Who has given gifts to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Deep study of Scripture leads to rich worship. And then he transitions from chapter 12 through 16 to talk about how it changes the way that we love our neighbors. Good theology should lead to deep worship and obedience. So, Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, let me give you a couple resources for deep study. If you want to dive into some deep study, there's suggestions on the back of the card. I'd encourage you to check out the Blue Letter Bible app. This allows you to check out uh, dictionaries, concordances, uh, do some word studies on your own. Logos has a, a Bible software online. I think you can access some of those things for free. 
Uh, get yourself a commentary. Uh, Matt and I suggested two options. Just pick one book of the Bible to read alongside of your commentary. There's plenty of other options. If you want to get into this, talk to me. I'll get you some resources. Hebrews chapter 4. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. If you do this well, if you study the Scriptures with an open mind, a prayerful heart, a humble heart, God will show up and He will speak to you. His Word is living, it's alive today, and it's powerful. Charles Spurgeon says there's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a study of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity and so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. So, once you've examined your heart, understood the broader context, began to dig deeply, you can expect two responses. We find them both in this text. The first is transformation. Many of the Berean Jews believed. A deep study of Scripture brought them into right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. As you study the Scriptures deeply with a soft heart and open eyes, you can expect God to show up and reveal some wonderful truths about Himself to you. We can also expect God to show up and reveal Himself to unbelievers when we reason with them from Scripture. The Christian faith is an intellectual faith. It's not something that falls apart upon further inspection. It is deep and rich. And as we engage people who, who don't yet believe it, God will show up. He will save lost people with deep theology from Scripture. Second response, this one's not as fun. And I'm almost done. I promise it's hot in here. We spend all this money on new heaters, and they work. It's crazy. So we can expect the Scriptures to transform us and to bring conflict. Right? Not only did some people get saved, but, but the Thessalonican Jews got angry. They were mad about the study. So I think conflict, conflict will come both from the outside and from the inside when we study the Scriptures deeply. First, the outside. Jesus tells his followers in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We will have exterior conflict when we submit our lives and our minds and our hearts and our souls to the Lordship of Jesus. Our culture around us will not like that. Just like the Thessalonian Jews threw Jason before the mob, we will have people that are angry at us for our ideas. Culture around us will disagree with the principles of the kingdom of God, and we can expect external conflict because we're a part of an upside-down kingdom. Not only will we have external conflict, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have internal conflict. Go back to that verse in Hebrews chapter 4. What happens when you open up the living, active, powerful Word of God? It is a discerner of the thoughts and an intent, and the intents of the heart. This may come as a shock to some of you, but the Scriptures were not written to affirm every idea and desire that you have. 
I laughed out loud when I wrote that down because I needed to hear it. Let's read it again. The scriptures were not written to affirm every idea or desire that you have. And so if we truly study the scriptures with a soft heart and an open mind, we can expect it to say things that we, not, we don't necessarily want to hear. And what we do with that is the most important thing in our scriptural studies. When we hear things that we don't want to hear from God, what do we do with that? Do we, are we willing to be humble and to repent, to turn from our ideas and to walk towards God's ideas? It will call things sin that we wish we weren't that we wish wasn't sin. It will convict us of selfish attitudes and unforgiving hearts, and it will break our hearts for our friends and family members who are close to us but far from God. Don't avoid the internal conflict. Lean into it. Wrestle with God around these ideas that you're struggling with. Although we might be frustrated by what God is saying, we can be sure that His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are better than our thoughts, and ultimately His ways will lead to the abundant life that He promises us. So, as we wrap up our time together this morning, I would encourage all of us this week, whether you're a head person or not a head person, to approach the Scriptures like the Bereans. Check out the options on the back of the handout. Draw near to God's Word with an open mind and a soft heart. Search the Scriptures daily. Look broadly. Dig deeply. And expect God to show up in both transformation and frustration. I truly believe that we, if we engage the Scriptures with this posture, God will use them to sanctify us as individuals and strengthen our local church. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word that it is living and powerful that it teaches us how we should think and how we should live. And ultimately, it leads us to abundant life and to those around us, sends us out to use this information, not for power or for reputation, but to follow the way of Jesus, to get down on our hands and knees and wash the feet of those around us. Father, may you show, Holy Spirit, may you show up this week as each of us think through the scriptures intellectually. Would you teach us things? Would you frustrate ideas that we used to hold so tightly to? And would you ultimately use the scriptures to conform us into your image? That for those of us that have become proud because of our intellect, may you humble us. And for those of us that haven't yet become followers of Jesus because of our intellect, may you help us to see the beauty of the worldview of the Christian faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to end our time together um, by taking communion, and then we'll have a, a closing. Um, hopefully you got one of these. If you didn't, there should be some back there. Um, we practice open communion at Canvas Community Church, which means if you are um, a believer in Jesus. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then communion is open to you. As I was trying to think, uh, Matt's been pretty clear throughout the series, which I think is really good. Um, communion is, is every area of the quadrant, right? Communion is head, it's heart, it's mystic, it's servant. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Communion is, is all of these things. So I was trying to think of how to, how to practice communion in a way that 
that would encourage our minds. And I thought about this verse where Jesus is, um, he's kind of drip feeding his crucifixion. He's kind of drip feeding communion far before it happens. He, he tells this large group of disciples that if you want to follow me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Wow. It's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty difficult statement to wrestle with. And a lot of the disciples, they can't handle it. They, they, they leave. They're like, what do you eat your flesh and drink your blood? I don't, I don't know what that means, and I don't know that I can submit to that kind of teaching. And after a bunch of people leave, Jesus looks around at his disciples. He says, you guys want to go too? They say, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? If, if, if following you means we've got to eat your flesh and drink your blood, which we don't have our minds wrapped around what that means yet, then, then we're in because you have the, the words, the ideas, the thoughts that lead to eternal life. So, as we take communion this morning, let's remind ourselves that we're, we're willing to participate in Christ's sacrifice. See, the Christian faith is about laying down your own life, taking up your cross and following Jesus. And we're willing to do that. Why? Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Let's take his body broken for us. Drink the juice that represents his blood shed for us. I ask you to stand. We're going to um, close by doing yet another unique thing that we don't do every week. We're going to close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Um, it, it'll be a call and response. The, the slides should be pretty clear. I will say, one part, you will say another part, and then at the end, we'll all finish the prayer together as we go out to the rest of our day. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace, church.